0: Hello everybody. It's good to see everybody. Thank you so much for being here i am I'm excited for this morning. Um, thank you to Matt for giving me the opportunity to share some things uh that i that I've had on my mind um some things that God has placed on my heart this is this message has been several. Weeks in the making, uh, since I talked with Matt a couple weeks ago about an opportunity that I'm going to share a little bit about at the end of of our talk. Uh, But would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Timothy? We're going to start this morning in the first chapter. We're going to start in verse 12 and we're going to I'm going to read straight through this portion um and uh we'll go from there. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 20 and I'm reading out of the ESV version. Chapter 12 or verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service Though formerly I was a blasphemer, pro, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, this is Paul, Talking now to Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience conscience. By rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are a biblical name, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn that they may learn not. It's a blaspheme. Going into chapter 2 now. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Father, we pause in this silence after reading and hearing your Holy Scripture. And in this portion of Scripture, we, we find a very interesting and very challenging commandment to pray. Father, we live such busy lives. We live such noisy lives. And I pray that in this still moment, that we would remember, that we'd be reminded like Elijah, that You speak in a still, small voice to us. And that we're commanded in Psalms 46 to be still and know I am God. Father, our lives are busy. Our lives are noisy. They're challenging. And yet as we break apart this commandment this morning, to pray, and to pray for a very specific group of people. I pray first of all that you would humble our hearts, beginning with me. Lord, my heart's desire is that it's not my words, it's not my message, but that you would speak to each of our hearts, starting with me. That you would challenge us and convict us. And that we would truly become a people who readily, frequently, and selflessly pray. Father, teach us, open our hearts so that we can receive what you have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about politics. Now before you jump up and run out of the back door, or before, Mike, or before Matt comes up and grabs the microphone for me and never lets me speak again, let me finish that sentence. This morning, we're going to talk about politics and how the church has failed it you say, well, that's not any better. Hang with me there. Hang with me for, for just a little bit. Now, before I go any further, before we dive into the scripture that we just read, um, I need to set some expectations and some, some boundaries this morning. Because anytime you bring up this topic, it's going to be filled with all kinds of stuff. And we need to set the expectation this morning that n- this morning has nothing to do with Republicans, Democrats, independents, socialists, capitalists, whatever label you can think of. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, this morning, I believe, because I am speaking to myself just as much as all of us in here, that there are partisan toes that are going to be stepped on and possibly smashed this morning, starting with me. Uh, this, this message has nothing to do with party, And it has everything to do with our hearts. Um, And I have to be very honest with you, over the last couple of weeks, and especially this week as I've really prepared and buckled down and really started to prepare for this morning, I have really struggled to put together some thoughts um, on this topic of what we just read about in prayer, the command that we're given in Scripture Because I see so much in culture, in today's culture, in today's society, and the way we think and the way we act and the way we react, that flies in the face of a lot of what Scripture has to tell us and command us to do when we are dealing with leadership. And here's another expectation that we need to to set. God does not belong to a political party. He doesn't belong to a political party. He's so much more than that. And we're going to get into that here in a second. Has nothing to do with political party. Instead, this morning has everything to do with our individual hearts as followers of Christ. We call ourselves Christians as followers of Christ. Scripture is quite clear when it tells us how to engage our culture as followers of Christ, not just in politics, but in every arena. The problem is, is that we so often, myself included, I'm going to say that a lot this morning, myself included, struggle mightily in that we try to fit Christianity into our own image, what is comfortable to us and what is going to be easy for us and we strive, we, we, we struggle with creating this balance between the truth of God's word and standing in opposition to what culture in our society in this sinful, fallen world is about. We struggle to bridge that gap with grace, with humility, and some things that I think scripture is clear to point out. Now, here's the problem. We live in a world full of division. A world full of of division. We live in a world of arguments and anger. We live in a country that is divided across every spectrum. Just take politics, for instance. We live in a country that is divided between political parties, yeah, ideolo- ideolo- ways of thinking. <laughs> uh, and individuals all across this country who struggle to bridge the, bridge the gap and instead seem, seemingly are constantly widening the, the chasm between common sense and truth and civility. We live in communities, much smaller scale. We live in communities filled with people, myself included, that are quicker to argue over social media and quicker to, to post whatever information, true or untrue, is out there than they are, than we are, to work towards a solution and work towards reconciliation. We live in a culture that thrives, in fact. Not just it's there, but it thrives on division. If any of you are on Facebook, have you seen some of the posts that fly back and forth? And the comments and the the passive aggressiveness. Uh, this week, I had a little experience of my own. Um, I don't know if you looked at my Facebook page this week. i made a couple posts Talking about some things where I agreed with some things and disagreed with some other things. And immediately, within a day and a half, 170, over 170 people had commented. Over 300 engagements on, on, on these posts. And people were going back and forth. My way's right. No, my way's right. This is what I think, and you should think it too. Comments that I had to delete because people were cussing at me for simply stating a position. Now, I'm not saying that you have to believe what I believe on every issue. I'm not saying you have to believe everything. But it it solidified in my mind a very recent example of, my goodness, we have division everywhere. Just this past week, we saw a chapter close in American history. Does anyone know what happened this week? We saw a chapter close in American history where we saw an uh, accusation, an impeachment, a trial, and an acquittal of the United States president. I am absolutely not going to get into the policy on this. But it doesn't take long for the casual observer to step back and realize, man, people just don't like each other doesn't take long to realize that there's division everywhere and it doesn't um, doesn't matter what it's about there's division on seemingly every topic we, we look at the political spectrum we and beyond the political spectrum uh, this morning and we look at the issues facing our world today you will find individuals on every side and there's division going back and forth between every side abortion homosexuality tax issues definition of marriage business issues economic issues climate issues military issues i work for the oklahoma real estate commission uh, association there's even real estate division and things that people just there it's a concept of divisiveness The list goes on and on. Now, when we look at the political spectrum, we have to realize something, that politicians are people too. Shocker, I know. Politicians are people too. So what does that mean when we look at the overall issue? The problems we see in the levels of politics are a direct representation and have a direct correlation with people everywhere and the problems that we see in our culture. As many of you know, for the last 10 years, I have served in one form or another in the the political realm. I spent eight years as an elected official in the Oklahoma House of Representatives. I've now been out of that arena, but I'm still working on political issues through my job. It's part of what I do. I have struggled this whole time And I have watched, I have struggled and I have watched others struggle across this incredible country that we live in with the delicate balance of standing for truth according to the commands of Scripture while at the same time standing in opposition to what a fallen culture offers and believes in. I've seen that struggle and I think all of us see that struggle every single day. We live on a culture that also thrives on drawing lines between people. Parties, party lines, genders, classes, races, belief systems, lifestyles, there's constantly lines drawn and labels are given to every single one of those groups. Liberal, conservative, left, right. Those are all labels that culture loves to put on someone. And sometimes, as soon as you meet somebody, it doesn't matter what the context might be, they may li- label you as something, whatever it is, and not even know anything about you. We live in a church culture which is quick to forget. The only label that matters. And that is we are loved by God. And not only that, but as Matt reminds us every single Sunday, not only are we loved by God, we are deeply loved by God. Every person, every individual. We while while we have become so consumed with being right. So infatuated with our own beliefs and opinions, we are at the same time forgetting one of the simplest, yet, yet so powerful of a call placed upon us as Christ followers. And that's what we just read about in 1 Timothy 1 and 2. To pray. To pray. Christ followers across this country have for years wrestled with that commandment found in 1 Timothy. And quite frankly, we are all too quick to sometimes completely ignore it. And I would humbly submit this morning that if Christ's followers took 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 through 4, to pray for our leaders, to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, for kings and all those in authority, that if we truly practiced that, there would be a radical sweeping change that happened across this country. So let's dive in a little bit to First Timothy. If you look at the portion uh First Timothy chapter one, verses twelve through twenty. Now, traditionally when we hear these verses of First Timothy two talking about praying for all those in authority for kings and and all uh, all individuals in a uh in a position of influence normally it's just the chapter 2 part but i wanted to include verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1 because i think it gives some very critical uh context to what paul is about to go into in chapter 2 now the entire book of 1 Timothy is structured to give the church instructions on what worship should look like and how churches should be structured each of the chapters has something to deal to something to do with the church church universal and paul begins this stretch in verses 12 through 20 by pointing to his own story his own story of mercy of forgiveness and redemption Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul himself was in sort a leader. Because if you remember Paul's story, we meet Paul in the book of Acts. And we meet Paul before he was Paul. Who was he beforehand? Saul. He was Saul. And we meet We meet Saul in the story of the stoning of Stephen, the martyr. In the very first verse that it mentions Saul, Paul, it's talking about how he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. So he had some kind of influence in the position that he was. We know that Paul came from a Pharisee family. Church leaders, we know that, that, that he it was in a position of influence, and he's pointing to his own story, verses 12 through 20, and saying, I was a bad guy. But, but, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul points to the overflowing grace of God for a sinner like him. And notice how he labels himself for all sinners of whom I am foremost. One can imagine and believe that if God's grace and mercy can save and redeem a sinner like Paul... God's grace can be extended and received by the vilest of people. At the end of that portion, Paul is beginning to charge Timothy with a calling to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And he points to two individuals, one with a biblical name, one that's named Alexander, um, and talking about their lives, of how they had rejected what Christ's followers are called to do, and it had been a shipwreck to them. It had been extremely detrimental to them. And he's doing this to set the context of the rest of the book of instructions to say, listen, all of us within the church universal, we are all sinners saved by grace. And everything that comes after this chapter one, as he's talking about setting up this, this institution of the church and how churches should be structured and the leadership's uh, structure, everything is bouncing off of these few verses. So then you go into verse, or chapter two. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that what happens when you do that, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's pick apart a few of these words because I think we need to to gain a little bit of context here. I am so proud of myself. I even opened a Greek Bible. Matt, you're going to be so proud of me here. Um, And I went back to the Greek because I wanted to to figure out the original intent of of some of these words. So the phrase that begins this, first of all, then, I urge you, "I, I urge that... It's not really talking about a period of, uh, of time, but rather importance. And I think this is key, that the very first thing that, that Paul really starts to talk about in the setting up of the churches, first, what do you need to do? What are the processes that you need to put in place as we talk about the church and structuring it and putting the different roles? First, what do you do? First of all, then, I urge that and here's, the word, and here's supplications. The word in Greek for supplications is deesis. No idea if I'm saying that right. Say deesis. Deesis. And this word simply means a, a seeking or an asking or even so far as a pleading, a begging to God. So that's supplications, and it's also paired with the word in, in Greek, it's also paired with the word for prayers. The two are linked together. If you look it up in a commentary, they're linked together, and the word for prayers that is used here, I'm gonna give a crack at this. Prosyuche. Prosyuche. Say prosyuche. There, now you all said it too, and I don't don't feel so bad if I mess that up. But that word for prayers is actually a a plural word. Meaning that prayers in the plural context of a corporate setting. So again, remember, he's setting up the church, giving instructions for, for the church, saying, first of all then, Prayers in the context of all of us, as we gather together, should be offered to God in a pleading and begging and and asking and earnestly seeking kind of way. Remember that supplications and prayers are are linked together. Then he says intercessions. An intercession would, would, the the more literal translation, would be a, a petition. A petition, a, a, a coming together all of one mind, all of one heart, and making a petition to God. And the Greek word for that is intaxis. Then he ends with thanksgiving. So we've been told supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings. I love this because the Greek word... For thanksgivings, that is used here, Eucharistia. Where have we heard that word before? Eucharist. That's where we get the word Eucharist. That's exactly when we come together and we do communion. Hey, everyone. There's a 72nd period starting right here where the batteries died in Josh's microphone, so we don't have that audio. Mike Wilson was able to get a new set of batteries out to Josh pretty quick. Luckily, you're only losing about 70 seconds, so I'm going to go ahead and take it where Josh picks up. In this time period, the relationship between Rome and Israel wasn't exactly stellar. There was tremendous strife, arguments, bickering, disagreements, division, Tyranny that were happening at this time. And yet, in the middle of all, this, all of this trouble and all of these clouds, Paul is giving this instruction. For prayers to be given for all men in all positions. There is a beautiful tra- uh, tradition that I, that I heard of a couple weeks ago in the Episcopal denomination. That they have a portion of their st- service that is called prayers of the people, and it's sandwiched between the the uh, reading and uh, coming together in a responsive reading like we do for uh, of the 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 creed. We believe in God the Father. There is one God who is the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. The 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 Nicene Creed. It's sandwiched between that and a portion of. A congregational confession like we do at communion but every single sunday in episcopal churches they have something that's called prayers of the people and during this time they come together and they pray together offering petitions for kings and all men who are in and all individuals who are in positions of authority by name doesn't matter who the president is doesn't matter who the governor is who the mayor is they come together and they lift these prayers of thanksgiving and praise uh, and prayers for these individuals the heart of that tradition which i think is beautiful the heart of that tra- uh, tradition is not only to follow through with the commandment that is given in 1 Timothy 2 but also to mold hearts Into supplicating, praying, interceding, petitioning, and thanking God, no matter the circumstance. On top of that, they believe, and I completely agree, that something remarkable happens when we pray for our leaders. Something remarkable happens they begin to realize, and really this doesn't just apply to our leaders, this, ha- this happens anytime time that we enter into a time of prayer, either corporately or personally. They begin to realize that while we have been praying for others, we've been praying for hearts to change for others and affect others, they're at the same time changing and affecting us. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. When prayers are prayed in humility and righteousness, it is impossible for those prayers to not change our hearts. Think of the model prayer that we're given in Scripture. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, it gives us that model prayer that we say every time that we do partake in communion Forever. Amen. That model prayer you can find in Matthew chapter 5 through 15. And the reason why I include verses 5, which is a little bit before we actually see this model prayer, is Jesus is talking about prayer in this whole section. Just begin to break apart the first portions of that prayer and tell me that it doesn't shake you to your very core. Verse 5. When you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Well, I'm out. I do that all the time. Have a heart that's not full of humility. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I do that. Have a heart that's not full of... Of humility and realizing that we are that God is God and we are not. You go through that portion of Scripture: submission, humility, self-exaltation, pride. Those are those are not areas that I have mastered. I don't know about you. Those are areas that I struggle with every single day. I struggle with those in my speech, in my attitude in my social media posts, in my business, school, parenting, church, in my recreation, if I struggle with all of that, then who am I to criticize, mock, oppose, challenge, or speak harshly of someone else? My prayer for us this morning is not just that we are people of prayer, but that we would be a people who ourselves are changed by prayer. So why else should we pray? Three reasons that I've written down. Number one, we are people of prayer. As we just read, Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom, his glory and kingdom to expand on earth as it is in heaven Perhaps the most prevailing need that we as Christ followers need today is a deeper understanding of the power of prayer. Prayer draws us closer to God and how He sees His people and how He desires us to pray. God hears us when we pray and He answers. Romans 13, 1-4 I'll just briefly read it. Let every person be subject to the the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resisted what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his reward. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The main portion I want us to focus on there is verse 4. He is God's servant. It refers to governmental leaders as servants of God. Now, we know that not every individual is but the attitude that we are called to take is an attitude of respect. Let our concern over a policy come after sincere prayer for a person's heart. Pray that a politician's time in office is marked less by legislative accomplishments or political wins and more by an encounter with the divine God of the universe. Reason number two, we've kind of gone over this. We're the church. We are the church. If we don't do it, who will? First Timothy, the the, the verse in First Timothy two states the desired outcome of the prayer for governmental leaders is to live a life of quiet godliness so that all people can come to the knowledge of truth. If we don't do it, who will? And then finally, reason number three why we should pray. We are peacemakers. We are given that command in Matthew 5, chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. The characteristic that most consistently identifies you to the world as a child of God is you being a peacemaker. Can I take that peacemaker one step further? If we can be brutally honest for a second, those of us in this room who are Christ followers, do you understand that you have more in common with a member of the Communist Party in China who is a follower of Jesus than we do with with an American that does not know him. Let me put it a different way. And this is a little more personal. Those of us in this room who know Jesus, if you are a Republican you have more in common with a Democrat who knows Jesus than a Republican who does not. And vice versa. Because the Prince of Peace, who rules and reigns as the King over all things, grants us peace in our own hearts and gives us the ability to love even those who we disagree with. We've arrived at this point that we've already discussed in the American consciousness that we believe that not only those who believe a, a, a separate way, a different way than we do, are wrong, we're skating dangerously close to believing that they are evil. In fact, we feel like we have to believe that they are evil so that we can crush them, so that we can destroy them, so that I can win a Facebook argument. We live in a culture where inevitably when I say something or you say something about politics, the the response is, well, you're just on the other side. You're just you're just you 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 don't know you're just on the other side. Folks, my prayer is that none of us are any on any side except Jesus' side. As those who believe that Christ is king, Our allegiance to him as king and the commandments that he gives us transcends everything else. Everything else. I found this quote. I was listening to a sermon from a preacher in in, in Tennessee. um, He gave this quote. This is how John Stotts, a British theologian in the Anglican church, could say, Christ's kingdom, while not incompatible with patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms. Let me read that again. Christ's kingdom, while not incompatible with patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms. He rules over an international community in which race, nation, rank, sex, political party are no barriers to fellowship. And when his kingdom is consummated at the end of time, the countless redeemed company will be drawn from every tribe, every nation, people, and nation, and and language. Let me close with this I love America. I love America. I truly believe that this is one of the best nations, if not the best nation in the history of the world. I truly believe that. I also love politics. I've lived it for the last 10 years. I I like politics. I like the idea of striving and working to make our world, our country, our state, our communities a better place to live and work. I love that. But of even more importance than that, I hope and I pray that I love Jesus more. I hope and I pray that my conduct and my words and my social media posts, my speech, my attitude, my thoughts and beliefs line up more with my love of Jesus than they do with my love of my country. We get so caught up in this kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We get so caught up in it. We argue and we bicker about who's best or who we want to win an election or retain power. We push to the side moral standards and truth in the name of convenience or patriotism. We support or oppose candidates or parties because it's the patriotic thing to do, and at the same time turn a blind eye to moral rot because we think it's because we think there is a lesser of two evils choice. We sung a song here before that we normally sing at New Year's. Um, it's to the tune of, and I never had to know how to say this, Auld lang Sign. It's to the tune of that song. It's by the, a group called King's Kaleidoscope. And there is a line in there that says, Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. I personally rejoice that America is not our final hope. A kingdom that is built on the sinking sand of human thought will inevitably fail. As believers, our hope is not found in America. It's not found in democracy. It's not found in a president or a governor or the foundations built by the founding fathers. Instead, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Therefore, our commandment is to pray. I want to give a practical application for this. If you'll throw that graphic up, John, a couple months ago, I was appointed by Governor Stitt to sit on the steering committee for an event that is happening on February 18th. That's next Tuesday. It's going to be at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. It's sold out. There's not a seat left. But Oklahoma has never had a coordinated effort until Governor Stitt put it together to have a prayer breakfast. Shocking. I found it kind of shocking. We've never, we live in the Bible Belt. The Governor's Prayer Breakfast is something that myself and several other people on this steering committee, along with Governor Stitt, as well as Sarah Stitt, the First Lady, have worked on for the last couple of months. And there is a call going out that I want to give to each of you. That on February 18th, it's a call to prayer even though the event is sold out, here's what I want to challenge each of us to do. On February 18th, a day that's been set aside to pray with absolutely no political agenda whatsoever, it's been incredible to be a part of because there's no political agenda. It's simply pray. To pray for our leaders, to pray for one another, to pray for our state. I want to encourage each of you to pray on February 18th. If you're so called and are able to, I would encourage you to take it one step further and to fast as well. I believe there's power in fasting. Of course, not everybody's able to do that, and that's fine. But there will be about 2,000 people gathered in Oklahoma City at the Cowboy Hall of Fame on our knees, praying. There will be locations all around Oklahoma that will live stream this event. And put on this event for people to come and gather in places and to do the same. Our conservative estimate so far, just based on numbers that have come in of people saying that they would participate. Our estimate is that on February 18th, there will be 50,000 Oklahomans praying. but I want us to take it a step further. Not just on February 18th. But every day, every second of every day, to pray without ceasing. Again, not necessarily so that their hearts will be changed, but to pray that God will begin a work in us. To be a people of prayer. To be a church that is called to pray in all situations. Let's pray. I'm going to go ahead and ask the band to to come on up. This morning we're going to do the altar call a little bit differently. We're not going to have any music going, and I just want us to take a few moments of silence. This morning I don't know if you personally are going through anything, um, or if you just simply want to start taking some of the commandments that we've read about to heart. Maybe this has been something you've been praying about with, with, your, with our leaders in the political realm for a long time. And that's incredible. Let's just spend a few seconds this morning. Being still. And knowing that he is God. God and taking the commandments of 1 Timothy to heart. To know that we don't trust in our own devices, we don't trust in our own thoughts, we don't trust even in this country, as amazing as it can be. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. May we be a people that trust in the Lord our God.